Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. It is Sunday, April 19th, 9 o'clock Eastern Daylight Time. And I'm here on the East Coast, and I'm with longtime co-host Bill Stegel. Bill, how are you? Hey, buddy. I'm doing great. Uh, I'm actually in our new outdoor studio in Flower Mound, Texas. And it's a beautiful night here. And uh, I'm just doing my civic duty by... Practicing social distancing, conserving toilet paper, and saving snake sheds. <laughs> for for toilet paper? Uh, you never know when they're going to come in handy. So I've just okay. been, all I've right. Just, you know, been I've been hoarding them. Nice. Okay. All right. How are you? How are you? I'm I am doing the same thing. We are uh, here on the East Coast. We are locked down. Um, and, uh, doing our, our duty here, uh, wife and I are doing our best to homeschool our two children and, uh, both work at the same time. And, um, unfortunately my wife has the brunt of the work cause she's stuck at home more than I am. So, um, that's pretty much it, you know, taking care of snakes, uh, trying to keep myself from getting contaminated and, uh, you know, conserving ammo, all that good stuff. Well, keep that uh, PPE close. I know you are. Um, we're going to have plenty of time to uh, catch up, to, to do some banter, to talk some green tree stuff. And, uh, you know, we're going to have some uh, question and answers from listeners tonight. But we have some uh, stuff that we need to take care of first, some important stuff. And um, I know you know what that means. Um but I want to, first of all, uh, bring somebody on and talk about uh, a member of the uh, Green Tree Python community, Forrest Fanning, who uh, recently passed away unexpectedly. And, um, you know, Forrest was a, a very dear friend of mine, and uh, I miss him very, very much. He... Uh, has a lot of support in the Green Tree Python community, and one of those people or couple that supported him was Ryan and Erica McVeigh. And um, I'm going to talk just a couple of minutes about my feelings about Forrest, but I want to get them on first because uh, they did a very, very nice thing for and the benefit of uh, his wife Desiree and their young son Lars. So let's bring uh, 
let's bring them both on. I think they're they're both going to join us for a couple of minutes and uh, tell us about uh, what they did uh, to memorialize Forrest and to help Desiree. Welcome, guys. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Hey, Ryan. <laughs> hey, how are you guys doing tonight? We're doing well. We're doing great. How are you? Good. Just uh, enjoying a nice day inside and hanging with the kids and eating some dinner. Well, thanks so much for, for coming on. You know, we had this scheduled two weeks ago, and unfortunately we had to cancel uh, – kind of last minute so thanks for being flexible and and getting on here with us no absolutely uh thanks for having us so why don't you tell us a little bit about um you know your relationship with forest fanning and uh the fundraiser that you guys uh recently uh hosted and participated in absolutely so so forest was uh I, I heard you saying earlier, I'm, I'm definitely missing too. So it's still a little hard, but um, Forrest was a really good friend. Um, he, uh, he was somebody I met through another mutual friend. Um, and he, he had a lot of the same values that I did when it came to um, improving what we're doing in captivity with these animals and educating people and really trying to get better information out there. Um, as well as just a passion for just learning and reading, you know, scientific articles instead of looking for a one-page care sheet. So uh, we'd send each other stuff like that back and forth all the time. Um, and then every time I was at a reptile show, you know, he was there, and, you know, we'd go road cruising and um, just kind of talk about the hobby and some of the big plans that we had and things we wanted to do. Um, there was a lot of cool stuff that we'd planned out that unfortunately is kind of taking a different turn now because of this, but... Um, he was somebody that just cared more about spreading education and helping people learn than he really cared about um, just breeding and being a breeder. And that was one thing that I really loved about him. And that's something that we really connected on because me and Erica keep a lot of animals and we, we, we always try and breed stuff, you know, and if they do, they do, if they don't, they don't, but we have a lot more fun in like uh, the educational aspects of what we do. And, and we get a lot more passion out of educating other people and, um, helping them to raise the standards of what they do too. Um, so that's, that's really where me and Forrest really connected. Um, and after, so that he passed away on Sunday, early morning. And on Monday I got a call, um, from Steven and, um, right away me, I talked to Erica and we're like, we got to do something. I know that they're going to be, um, in a little bit of struggling, I know the whole family is going to be, everybody's in shock about it. So uh, I told Erica we needed to do something. And uh, well, and the first thing we did was I, me and uh, a friend of mine, Bill Stewart, jumped in a car right away Tuesday morning at about five o'clock in the morning and drove out to Indianapolis to go see what we could do to help. Um, and then after spending oh. some time on the farm there and getting the animals, all, all the animals, uh, a lot of the reptiles in the reptile building kind of caught up and um, a lot of the water bowls and things changed because, things have been kind of crazy. So we were able to go down there and help them get all that stuff done. So at least that was something they didn't have to worry about. And while we were out there, we were talking about how, how far, we could how, do... far how far are you for Brian? About four hours. Okay. So it wasn't too off. It wasn't too bad, but we, we, we like I said, we left about five o'clock in the morning. I think we got back about 2 a.m. Um, but we just went out for the day uh, just because I only had one day. I could jump out of work real quick and be gone. 
Um, and I knew with Tinley coming up, we had talked a lot on the way there and back, me and uh, Bill Stewart, about what we could do to, to help out more. And um, so I got on the phone with Bob Ashley uh, and Phil Goss and asked if it, we could borrow some of the time at the U.S. Arc auction because U.S. Arc was coming up the next weekend. And they were both absolutely okay with it um, uh, and supported the idea as well. So the first thing I did was start reaching out to a bunch of people, trying to get auction items. Um, and I had people that we, we had animals sent to the house so I could bring them to Tinley. Uh, we're only about a half hour away from Tinley park. Um, so we just collected everything at the house at first and got a whole bunch of, uh, animals here. We had, uh, paintings, we had a whole bunch of stuff, uh, books, prints, just anything anybody wanted to donate, um, gift certificates, things like that. Um, and of course you guys know right about Thursday evening, uh, the Tinley park show was canceled. <laughs> right. So, so putting this together for a couple of days and then having it all fall apart right away, we kind of freaked out. Um, and, and me and Erica started talking quick about how we could change this up and do something. We had to keep it going. I wasn't, I'm not okay. Like, accepting. I wasn't okay. Accepting that that was it. So um, we're both, I'm the founder and uh, executive director for the Madison area herpetological society. And Erica's on the board as the, um, young explorers coordinator and uh we do facebook auctions uh in a group that we have and we're able to do that because we're a business so we don't we, we kind of scoop past the, the the rules they have with animals and selling online um so we use that we decided to use that platform that we built um to raise money for the herb society and to for some rescues and other things uh to move the auction there uh, and once we did that, we ended up going from about, I want to say about 50 items to 165. Um, wow. Because a lot more, yeah, a lot more people were able to be involved because they weren't going to be at Tinley. Um, so they were able to be involved in a digital online type platform. Um, and then we, we got everything from, I mean, we had some venomous snakes in there, which I've, I've never put into an auction before. So Erica made sure to put in the comments, like, uh, in, in the notes at the bottom of the auction, like if you are not allowed to have venomous and you buy these, we'll find you and kill you. Um, <laughs> right at the Illinois people. Yeah, because in <laughs> Illinois you're gonna have permits, and we're like, I'm like, if you're in Florida or Illinois or any of those states, we know. Like, I will, I will check it out first, and I will cut you, like, because <laughs> we're already not real comfortable with this. But if it's the right people and we know them and they're they're you know good people and they they, they have venomous experience, I'm okay with it. But we were a little timid with it, um, but it really came down to, I know that that was in, uh, one way that some people that were good friends of Forrest as well could also kind of pitch in um, and help make some money. So we didn't want to turn anything down. We only turned a couple things away, uh, but they were a little out there and I didn't think they really fit well with the ideas that we all had about the hobby and things like that. And, um, okay. But yeah, nothing too crazy. I mean, we had a, basically a plastic deck ornamental phallus type object that was in there at one point too. Uh, so yeah, it was, uh, even that one, it was me and Erica looking at each other for like 10 minutes going, I don't know, I don't... <laughs> but I'm like, it's on the Herb Society thing. Like it's, it's, cute, it's 18 and over, but I'm like, I don't really know if I want to put a rainbow dick on here. 
I'll give you buddy. I'll give you buddy's shipping address, and you you can send it over to him. That was I'm like, yes, we're okay with it. Yeah, she described it with a pun, and then Erica. It doesn't matter what you send, Erica, as long as it has a pun in it, she's cool with it. So yeah, so I mean, after collecting a lot of that, actually, one of the parts too, we actually ended up, even though Tinley was canceled, a lot of people had already shown up, and we're at the hotel, yeah. so there was like a little thing there and get together so Leland Ward was there and I needed to pick up some cages from him anyway and since like I said since we're a half hour away we were like screw it so we uh so me and Erica jumped in the car and went down to pick up the cages and kind of talked to some other people we knew that were there uh Sari Descartes who had some stuff for the auction and kind of made sure to make the rounds of everybody who was physically there um and and grabbed what we needed to and then head back um, so yeah, so that, so we made sure to get as much as we could from everybody that he wanted to donate, but, uh, well, how much, and then it, how much money did you, did you raise? Uh, the total at the end was just shy of $50,000. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. It came out to like 40, oh, I want to say like 49,700 or something like that. Unbelievable. I had no idea. Yeah, I would have to go back into the account and look at, or, 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 well, she has, and I have to ask Desiree what the final total was. Because when I, what we did is we created a new PayPal account so that it would all be not tied to us, so nobody would have any, any thoughts that you know we were scraping out of it or something. And so we put it into a sure. new account, right. gave Desiree the password and everything, and then um, I went in there to help her out a couple times. So some of it, it was weird payments, and we need to make sure everybody's payments were going through, so we were using it for that, but. Um, so yeah, and then we handed it over to her and once all the payments went through and everything got passed, like a hold, so a couple items had, or a couple payments had hold period things on them. So once all that was done, then, uh, then we were all good. And then me and Erica took care of shipping out, uh, all the items that we had at the house. That was the craziest part of it is because we had already, we had expected it to go to Tinley. We had a ton of it at the house. So we still put those items in the auction but the, or nothing venomous for my DNR people who listen. <laughs> but we uh, we 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 were the ones that had all that stuff, so it was a little bit crazy at the end because we had a lot of people that were like, "Oh, when is my stuff coming?" And I'm like, "Well, you guys, we have all of the first 50 items at our house, and we didn't we don't have packaging for them or anything because we weren't expecting to have that happen. And some of them were big paintings and like prints in glass frames. So it took us wow. a week and a half to get. Oh boy, I ended up. Yeah, I ended up running to work and stealing, <laughs> taking a whole bunch of our boxes out of the garbage <laughs> and stuff and um, things that we needed to just bubble wrap and anything I could find that was laying around to package this stuff. And we spent about both together two nights just packaging up everything we possibly could and then organizing it and then getting it out. To, I went to the post office one day to ship out most of it, and that was a nightmare. They were only letting like two people in at a time. There was only one clerk. There was uh, almost a yeah. fight in the lobby because some guy was all crabby and pissed off. And uh, so, so I went back and I'm like, hey, I went back to the house. She's like, get it all shipped. I'm like, no, we're going to ship the second half of UPS. I'm just going to go over there tomorrow because that was insane. Wow. Um, so we did that and then just got the rest of it out. And I think everybody just within, it was about two weeks ago, and I think everybody just now started finishing up uh, getting all their items. So. But, uh, wow. yeah, no, it was it was an incredible thing to, to be a part of, and that's something that I really do love about the reptile community is, you know, when Joe Hupp's daughter had passed away and they had incurred a ton of medical bills, that Tinley auction went through the roof and they got a ton of money to help with them. And 
seeing it, the community kind of step up and, and help each other out is, is pretty awesome. And, you know, me and Erica did a lot to just kind of facilitate it and give it a place to live. But um, the real, you know, heroes kind of in this were the donors and the people who bought this stuff. I mean, with everything going on and the uncertainty and everything, people were still still willing to, to shell out quite a bit of money on a lot of different really high-priced items. And most of the stuff that we had in that auction went for close to value. It was pretty insane. Yeah, that's wow. nice. That's fantastic. Very nice. Yeah, it's a huge under a huge undertaking, guys. And you know, we, buddy and I, can't uh, thank you enough. The reptile community can't thank you enough. I mean, just you know, what a blessing that was. Yeah, it was. It was a. <laughs> I'm. I, I. That's one thing. I, I. I was happy to do it. We were both happy to do it, but we're definitely glad it's over and done. It was. We were wow. up till three in the morning from the night that the auction went live until it closed. We didn't go to bed before three o'clock in the morning. Wow. Cause every, wow. every night after the kids got to bed, we were organizing, going through uploading stuff throughout the week. We were getting donations all the way up till Thursday. Um, Thank God for Emily Grezda. Yeah. We had uh, Emily Grezda came over and actually helped us photograph some stuff. So um, yeah, it was, it was a big undertaking, but I mean, it was, late nights every night until it finally all closed. And then even after it closed, it was another, you know, week of tracking people down, getting payments, getting shipping information, um, and trying to work all that stuff out. So it was a big process and it was, it was a lot of work, but it was, it, the outcome was incredible. I, I was hoping when we started that, especially with the Tinley auction, I was hoping to hit somewhere around like 15,000, um, just because, you know, just at least be able to help them cover funeral expenses and the things that kind of jump out at you at the end. Um, and we just blew that away and which was pretty incredible to, to, to watch. Oh, I mean, in the, in the first That's 24 awesome. hours before we even had all of the items up, we had about, I want to say just under a hundred items up. Um, and at, the, at first we had a lot more, we still had to get going, but at that point we were just, we needed to take a break and start the next day. Um, but after the first 24 hours of the first items being up, we hit $27,000. Wow. That's just incredible. I had no idea. I had no idea. Um, and then you know, there there were other folks that that um, helped raise money too. I know that um, MJ Exotics Cartel did T-shirts, yep. which I just got mine in the mail two days ago. And I, so I know you know he's also uh, you know raising money, and I'm, I'm I'm sure there's probably others. Yeah, there was a lot of people that reached out um, in ways that they could help and. I'd spoken with MJ about the t-shirts and, and him and, you know, some other people were working together on that. So I'd talked to them about it too. And um, the whole goal with everything that I was telling everybody was, you know, just keep in mind, you know, helping Desen and, and Lars and, and not making it, not making them have to do anything with it or for it, like be a part of it. Cause right now it was just let them grieve, let them do their thing and let's all band together on the other side and do some stuff to see what we can do to help them. So when, the, when, you know, everything comes out of this a little bit and their life slows down and becomes a little more normal, they have some support that they may not have thought they had. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, listen, yeah. I can't thank and, you guys enough for, for, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say one more thing in that auction page. Um, it's the MAHS benefit auctions. Anybody who wants to stop in there, there's a post in there. I'm still working on something right now that has to do with forests. Um, and what I need is from every single person that can find that post, 
there's a uh, a mailing address. I need everybody to send me their stick their business stickers. Um, this is all going. They're all going to go into something really cool um, to kind of memorialize for us. And uh, it's a project that I was hoping to bring to Tinley, but I ha- and I can't get it done until we have a reptile show where I can get every. I can actually go around and see everybody. Um, but I need those stickers. Any stickers, business cards, anything like that. People want to send. Um, there's an address on there, and they can ship it out until. Well, whenever, until until we have okay. another reptile show. Okay, good enough. And do you know, Ryan, if people want to contribute just monetarily uh, to, to, to Forrest, to Dez, to Lars, you know, is there a GoFundMe page or PayPal address that people can go to donate? Yeah, there there is a GoFundMe page. The only the reason we ended up pushing more to PayPal is they don't take a cut. Um if you if you send it friend and family, um, the PayPal account that we had had set up was uh, Zoo Dreams Memorial at Gmail dot com. Um, we would have to check with Des to see if she still has it active, but it should be. Um, yeah, well, it should still be. Yeah, still should be active and fine. Um, but it's Zoo Dreams Memorial at Gmail dot com yeah. on uh, PayPal. Yeah, that's where I, that's where I sent a donation and it was active, uh, but I I did it. So, you know, a couple of weeks ago, but I, I, I'm pretty sure it's still active. Yeah, it should be. I don't know why it wouldn't be. So, um, okay. Yeah, it still should be active and fine. Even if she'd withdrawn the, the money that was in there, it would still be the, it'd still be an active account. Okay, fantastic. Well, like I said, um, I can't thank you enough for, uh, for coming on and sharing that with us um, for, for what both of you guys did uh, for Forrest and his family. Well, thanks, guys. I mean, like I said, uh, it was it was a it was awesome to be able to be a part of it, and and the real, you know, big people to call out are all the donors and the people who bought. Like that that's what made that thing happen. You know, we helped to organize it and get it out there, but the real heroes of that were all the we people that did shit. that. <laughs> In comparison, we didn't do shit. That was everybody else that did it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's very humble. It's not true, but it's very humble of you yeah. guys to say it. And um, you know, again, can't thank you enough. Absolutely. Well, thanks, guys, and thanks for having us on. And, as, you know, it was kind of <laughs> a little bit of a trip to go down and kind of all that and break it down again. We've kind of just flown past it and just kind of living on. But, no, we'll, we'll definitely remember Forrest, and then all of us will. So he's going to be greatly missed. All right. You guys stay safe. Yeah, you too. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> Absolutely. Have a good night, guys. You too. All right, great, great stuff, great information to hear about uh, about Forrest. Um, and, you know, we've got another person, uh, Buddy, as you know, um, that also left the Green Tree Python community unexpectedly, and uh, that was that was Andrew Amon. Yep, true, very very sad. Um, I didn't know Andrew personally. He was actually very active on MVF before the Facebook era. And, um, man, he had some amazing pairings for a while there, lots of neat animals that, you know, were just top of the line, was a very friendly guy, always, at least, you know, knowing someone through a forum, you know, very helpful, very friendly, very approachable. Um, so, yes, sad, sad to hear about Andrew. Yeah, yeah uh, even though Andrew was from Texas, I never – had the chance to meet him he 
I kind of got into green trees as I think he was um, not getting out of them, but I think he kind of peaked with a lot of his stuff before I was uh, actively in, involved. Um, and as, as outgoing and as, as much of, as a public figure that Forrest was in the reptile community, um, Andrew was probably the opposite. You know, he was much more under the radar, uh, but he was still a very active and important member of the condor community. Agreed. Definitely. He, as you may know, he was very good friends with Matt Morris, who Matt's a very good friend right. of mine. Matt is also uh, in Austin, and he sent me a, a few words to share about Andrew that I'm just going to uh, briefly share with you and with the audience very, very briefly. Uh, Andrew Amon was born and raised in Austin, Texas, and he had a longtime passion for the outdoors. He started getting into reptiles, like most of us, uh, very early age, uh, junior high. He kept and bred a few different things, uh, three different species, until about 2005 when he, he had a, a pet chondro that died. And in his search for a new one, he discovered the MVF, uh, the Morelia viridis forum. And he was hooked, and he got chondro fever, and it uh, eventually imported four adult animals and, and produced his first clutch in 2007 so again that's you know that's a long time ago that's a couple of years before i even got into and was introduced to chondros and um he produced some locality and mixed locality clutches and then he headed in the the breeding direction of, of designer green trees and uh, matt says that he was passionate about a lot of things but chondros were always his addiction he, he was a very meticulous person in his research, like a, a lot of us are. And he was probably best known for his blue line animals. A lot of the new keepers uh, may not even know that, but he was instrumental in producing a lot of blue line animals. He was an active member of the MVF, and uh, his clutches can, can, be, can be seen there with a little digging. He made a lot of good friends on that forum and uh, made a few trips to Daytona to meet those people in person. And Matt uh, also says that the majority of his last two clutches went to Europe. I'd love to see uh, who acquired his animals there. And uh, Matt just wanted to let everybody know that he was a great asset to the condor community, and he will be missed as well. Well, that was great. Um, yeah, that's 2005. That's when I was... Uh, that was my first foray into green trees when I had joined the forum. Strangely, um, I thought Andrew had been there for a while already. So um, I bet that's definitely interesting to know that date. Yeah, yeah. Um, just one of those guys, that, again, under the radar, but a good guy. Um, you know, just uh, had a lot of good positive attributes and seem to just be a real positive influence on the community again this before I was actively involved even yeah yep mm, okay all, all right. right we're going to mention one, we're going to mention one other thing before we get into the the meat of our show which is going to be obviously what everybody wants to hear talking about condros some husbandry uh, we're going to get some questions on board. If anybody's listening, they can go to the GTP Keeper Facebook page, and uh, we're going to uh, start taking some questions there. 
but I wanted to mention uh, Southeast Carpet Fest, uh, which was held on February 9th. It was hosted by Cody and Pierre Bartoloni of Terrestrial and Arboreals, and it was held in Melrose, Florida. And it was a huge success. Over 100 people attended. I was not able to attend this year. I was at the Southeast Carpet Fest last year and had a great time. Um, but again, fundraising was their hallmark. They had uh, T-shirt sales that raised $1,200 for USARK, and their auction raised an astounding $30,000 for the Servantovirus wow. and Nidovirus research. So again, $30,000 raised uh, for Serpentovirus or nidovirus research. That's something that uh, has affected all of us. If you keep green tree pythons, it's affected us directly or indirectly. It's something that we all need to be educated about and keep on top of. So that was great news. All those funds are going to go to several universities. These are big-time universities that are researching uh, nidovirus, University of Florida, University of Georgia, Colorado State University, and Utah State University. And all of that money will go to advance our knowledge about uh, Serpento or nidovirus. That's awesome. I will just say, um, Ian Bissell asked me to mention a few people that were instrumental in raising that money. Um, obviously, Ian Bissell is the backbone of Southeast Carpet Fest. He puts a lot of that stuff together, does a lot of the advertising, the promotion, um, and the collection of money in organizing the auction. Uh, Justin Smith, Eric Chung, Amanda in Dallas, and Amanda in Dallas Rua, Maria Mar Masso, Michael Arnold, and a slew of other people participated in making everything come together. And so, I would personally like to thank them uh, for their time and, and their effort for a great cause. Yeah, that, that that's amazing. I mean. I know talking to Ian uh, at uh, Northeast Carpet Fest a couple of years ago, he he had kind of had this vision of, man, if we could raise money for research into nidovirus and uh, maybe come up with uh, some better tools to manage that in captive uh, captive uh, collections, and you know here it is uh, two years later, and you know they're doing it. They, they're doing it. They've, they've put their plans in action. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I, I'm just always astounded by the amount of money that the reptile community can raise, uh, whether it's for members, you know, outstanding members that need it in, in a time of need, or if it's for, um, you know, things like nidovirus research. It just astounds me how much, how generous uh, the reptile community is. Yep, they definitely can come together and um, unite for good causes. Yeah, I'd love to see it. Well, let's get into the meat of the show. Um, okay. God, we were we were talking about this before we went live. How long has it been since our last show? Actually, I just looked back. I thought it was August, but it was actually – we had Jeff uh, Godbold on back in yeah. July. July, so, so um, eight eight months ago. Yeah, it's been a while. Doesn't seem like it. Where did that time go? 
Unbelievable. Well, um, you know, and as as we've also talked about, this is the first time in six years that we've never had a guest on. Just you and me doing it Eric and Owen style. Oh, boy. <laughs> You're not going to be able to nap on this episode. You realize that, right? I know. I know. I, I usually just have everything muted and I'm, you know, singing and laughing and, you know, kind of just, you know, hanging out and doing the technical side of the thing. So it's going to be uh, yeah. a little bit harder for me. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually a little nervous. <laughs> You're going to have to come out of your shell. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I wa- definitely. I want you to paint. I want you to paint yourself, though. Okay. I I will. I will. So, um, do you want to start? Like, what's been going on with you? God, in eight months, a ton has gone on with me. Uh, as you know, you know, we, I moved. Right. I moved about I moved about forty five minutes away from my old facility. Um, that was about four months ago, and I moved roughly four hundred and fifty animals, racks, cages, and equipment. And I'll tell you, it was uh, the longest three days of my life. Oh, my goodness. 450 yeah, snakes started, or animals? Well, all snakes. Yeah, 450 snakes, all the racks and cages and equipment to go with them. And, um, you know, it was a quote-unquote local move. But I think from Friday morning to Sunday at you know, three or four o'clock in the morning, I maybe had slept three hours. And, mm. you know, there's just a, a, a feeling of urgency when you have that many animals in tubs, totes, pillowcases, snake bags, you know, to get them moved and to get them unpacked. And it was a daunting process. And uh, I could not have done it without the help of some of the local members of, of the Condor community here. We have a really strong community in the in the Dallas Fort Worth area um, but again you know I need to throw some names out there Mark Hager and Brian Phillips Logan Murray um, Evan and Andrea Broder and Jose and Jackie Gallo donated you know a full weekend of their time to help me uh, get this done and I could not have done it uh, without without that much help it was a, a daunting process for the six or seven or eight of us that participated. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Was there a party afterwards? Uh, To be honest, no. There was, uh, I'm going to go home and go get in bed afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I have, um, I have agreed that this fall I will host, you know, the next, southern carpet fest we haven't had one here in two years now and um so now that i'm settled in here we usually do it in the spring but obviously that's not going to happen this year but this fall i will be uh hosting 2020 southern carpet fest nice very nice so we'll celebrate we'll celebrate then And so how how do the animals react, Bill? Um, actually, overall, they, they did great. Um, I lost I lost one animal 
to the move. It was a green tree python, and I think it was probably a physical um, injury. I had a lot of these mm. things in pillowcases, you know, kind of stacked as gently right. as I could in totes. But I think uh, I think it was a physical injury. I think there was a spinal issue. He uh, was put in his cage and perched, but didn't perch normally for a few days, and then and then he expired probably on day five after mm. we moved. But that was that was really the only casualty to move. So I, I, I couldn't have been more thankful. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's very commendable. So it's a yeah, lot of yeah. animals to move. Yeah, it is a lot of um, animals and a lot of equipment. Bill, I think, um, you may have less, you may have forgotten to thank someone. Who did I miss? I think there was a young, I think there was, it may have been a young lady helping move some royal pythons. Um, Peyton Browder, maybe? <laughs> yes. Yes. Evan, Evan and Andrea's daughter. Yes. She was there and. Okay. Yeah. She, cer- she certainly helped, helped move some animals. The the that photo they have on, uh, on our Facebook page of her, she's holding a royal python, but she's got an amazing shirt on. Um, so I like her already. She's going to be a great person. <laughs> she already is a great person. Was it one of yours? Obviously. Uh, no, she's got. Um, it looks like she's got a chondro shirt on. Uh, okay. Like good. Uh, yeah, like I see a green chondro. Looks like a red neonate, maybe a yellow neonate, and then the royal <laughs> pythons hiding the other part of it. So can't tell. But yeah, yeah, awesome. Fantastic. Someone was there to take charge. <laughs> oh, she's definitely one to take charge. Just ask her mom and dad. <laughs> I'm sure. So, uh, tell us what's going on on your end. You've you're hatching some babies. Oh man, yeah. You want you want to do the collection first? Uh, what are um, you? What are so, you do yours? Okay. So. Um, let's see. I had, had a, uh, uh, a first for me this year. Um, I lost a really, my favorite female ever. You know how that goes. Wow. One, one of their favorite. Um, I was doing a pairing and, um, she was grabbed by a male in a feeding response and constricted and, uh, did not recover. Holy cow. Um, so he constricted her. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Did you um, no. Nope. I was no. uh, actually out of town, and I uh, have I hire um, animal caretakers when I'm out of town, and so um, they told me what had happened, or the, she, the person told me what had happened. Uh, I asked if possible to kind of separate them, and they were able to do that. And then when I came, I, I fortunately I was due to arrive back in the next day. So when I came in the next day, um, she was grounded. Um, looked like she had some swelling going on and uh, contacted my vet and uh, had an appointment for the, you know, 9 o'clock appointment for the next day. But unfortunately, she passed away that night. Um, oh so, yeah, pretty sad. But, um, hey, you know, it happens. It's a, it's a risk, right? Yeah, you've got to take uh, the bad with the good, right? Yep, absolutely, right? You, you, you know, 
they're they're living creatures and they'll do what living creatures do and they will still hunt and all that fun stuff when they're paired so um so that was uh that was back in like september so that was the first time that's ever happened to me i've heard of other keepers uh you know make a post or have talked with other keepers where they've had um animals have feeding responses together and they've had to try to wrestle them apart and break them away. And so that, you know, the animals aren't injured. So, um, yeah, so that, that was a first and that, it, and so I had a, a couple other pairings going on and they, they both took, I had a clutch hatch about five weeks ago and I just had a clutch hatch this past week. Um, and, so, you know, happy to uh, – I had chondro babies last year, but not as many as this year. But it's good to see, you know, it's good to have chondro babies, and I've been able to dedicate a little bit more time to getting them established um, just because I've been home a little bit more, which is a nice thing, um, being able to, yeah. you know, be there and, you know, not feel any – you know, when, when your time's limited and you have to establish babies, oftentimes you go with a little bit of anxiety or stress because you know you have limited time and – you want everyone to be successful and you want them to eat and you want them to be established. And, you know, you know how it is when you're working against time, a time constraint with, with, uh, you know, baby snakes, it doesn't really always work out that way or work out positively. So, um, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it really for my collection. Um, how, how many you know, babies are you working with? Kind right of, now? uh, 20, 20. Wow. Out of 20 babies two this year. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, I had two clutches. I had um, the first female laid a clutch of uh, 12, and so uh, 11 babies from that clutch, and uh, the second clutch was 11, and I have nine babies that hatched out of that clutch. Yeah, and you had uh, a special, kind of a special baby hatch out of one of those clutches, right? Yeah, actually I did, and it's one of those things where I've had some things hatch and they kind of do this thing where they start crawling out of the egg, but then you kind of, you're staring at them thinking, wow, this could be very interesting. But then they either crawl out and they're kinked and they've got some other things going on with them that aren't conducive to life or um, they just don't, they just don't survive. And so I had this baby hatch and, um, much different looking than its clutch mates. And, you know, so I kind of, you know, was like, ah, well, let's just wait and see if it actually comes out of the egg. So it came out of the egg pretty well, you know, no problem coming out of the egg, you know, was alive for a couple of days. I shared some pictures of it with some friends because I really wasn't sure um, if it was something different or just, um, uh, just a, you know, a variation of, you know, the normal spread of uh, differences in babies that you get when the, when the clutch hatches. You know, we've all had clutches hatches, and they kind of can run the gamut of, you know, heavily patterned to no pattern to very light to very dark. Um, so you know, it's one of those things. This is just a, a variable thing that's happened. So um, I shared it with a couple people and their initial impressions were that they thought that it would be, that it was an albino. And I wasn't really thinking it was uh, just because of some of the things I didn't see. And I'll, I'm going to, you know, 
you know, and I, Bill and I, you and I talked about this. I'm not like big on uh, like I guess you would say morph stuff. Like I don't really know. I don't pay much attention to albino snakes or leucistic snakes um, or you know whatever different thing can pop up with you know naturally occurring. Uh, you know, randomized events with, you know, breeding reptiles. I just don't really follow because, you know, we work with green tree pythons and we don't really see that kind of stuff. You know, we yeah, kind of tend to, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we right. work with more like you know, polygenic traits. And, you know, if you want right. to breed for blue or for yep. black or breed for yellow or whatever. Right. Um, so, um I reached out to the, you know, I reached out to uh, you, Bill, and Marshall Mendez obviously has a lot of experience with the albino project, just to kind of get his opinion. You know, Marshall's like, yeah, you know, I don't think it's an albino just for these reasons. Um, and so I kind of was going through the chondro folks that I knew just to see, like, hey, what do you think this is? And I thought, you know, probably the best person, at least in my experience, would be reach out to Nick Mutton. Um, okay. He's you know very well very well versed on um, inheritance, um, what certain things would look like, um, understanding how you know certain things could happen. So I reached out to Nick and I just said, Nick, I want to sh- you know share with you some photos, just you know, and take your time. I'm in no rush. Let me know what you think. And so Nick, you know, reached out to the photos and Nick was like, Wow, it's you know very interesting. Can you tell me? about the pairing, can you tell me about the parents, what do you know about the parents and all this stuff? And his first question was, is this are are any of these animals related to the current albino project that he he's relating to uh you know Marshall's project? And you know, my answer is no. Um no relation at any to any of the current albino projects or any relation to any of the trooper wash Type stuff, blue line animals. There's you know, some people who claim that blue line animals carry the, may possibly carry um, the albino trait. So, um, and so I told him, you know, people had said albino, people had said leucistic. So he kind of, you know, gave me information. He got back to me and he's like, he's like, I think that, you know, he's like, I'm, I'm certain that it's not an albino. He's like, I'm certain it's not a leucistic. Um, so his feeling is it's a visual hypo visual trait for hypomelanism is what it is. Um, okay. and that so he was you know kind of his advice was um you know do you know definitely try to do a repeat pairing in the future and see what happens and um obviously try to breed that animal back to either the male or the female, depending on the, the sex that it is. So um, that's kind of what I'm going with right now. Uh, you, know, pr- you know, just maybe a uh, extreme form of hypomelanism that's maybe visual on a red baby right now. And, um, you know, just talking to Nick, some of the things he said really just made a lot of sense with, you know, you know, we know that there's hypermelanism in chondros. So, you know, hypomelanism would be uh, would be obvious that that could occur as well. So, um, so they uh, that that's what we're thinking is that at least that's what I'm thinking is that um, 
It's a hypomelanistic animal. I don't think it's leucistic, but we're kind of waiting, you know, at least I'm kind of waiting to see uh, how it changes. It has, as of today, it's had five meals. Um, and so I haven't really messed with it much. I just don't mess with my babies and take photos until I've had, you know, maybe a dozen or so meals. And so um, a few more meals, I'll try to take some better photos. I did take a photo of it today and, and uh, of a couple of the different clutch mates, and I will post them up on the GTP Keeper radio site. And um, there's an animal that looks like it, it is maybe an intermediary phase of this snake, which could be interesting. Um, and I guess the other thing, too, is that I haven't really discussed the pairing that this uh, animal came from. And that animal, yeah. actually, this this is a repeat pairing. So I, okay. this is a repeat pairing of um, a uh, pairing I did two years ago. It was a uh, uh, Bushmaster New Blue male that was outcrossed to a Jabhor female that was produced by uh, Speedy Gonzalez. And huh. that male is Liggett, and Liggett was paired to a female named Whiplash, and Whiplash was produced by me um, in 2011, and she came from a pairing that was a male named Nizik and the same female Gonzo. So both the male and the female share the same dam. So they both have Gonzo as uh, the the familial animal, so the animal that maybe carries the inheritance. Now, the first pairing didn't show anything like this. It actually showed, uh, three, uh, I'm sorry, two yellow babies that had what we call rotten banana crypsis, which is a mix of red and yellow um, coloring together. Yeah. And the reason I repeated the pairing because I wanted more of those babies um, just to see that appears to be an inheritable trait because that female a whiplash, uh, she had, she was a RBC baby, a rotten banana crypsis baby, a red and yellow baby mix. So I was just trying okay. to, you know, you know, prove out some inheritance. Um, and so this uh, hatched from that, from this repeat pairing. Um, and so as luck would have it, I have um, another male from the Bushmaster New Blue to uh, Gonzo pairing. His name is Almighty, and I have another female whose name is Campanola, who is a sister to Whiplash. And I had, before the snake hatched out, I had planned to pair them this upcoming season, so the fall of 2020. So I'm going to move forward definitely in that location with the, that pairing to see maybe um, if we can maybe get another similar animal uh, using animals with the same genetic background. Are your thoughts or with talking with Nick or, or maybe even Marshall, if this is a hypomelanistic animal, are your thoughts that it that would be a recessive trait in green trees? Like, Yeah, that's a good question that I didn't ask Nick, but I would definitely ask him that. Um, so I would say probably it would be. Um, the The neat thing to me is that uh, this the 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 common animal, the female, this job poor female that I got from Speedy Gonzalez back in um, 2007 or 2008. Um, we uh, Speedy and I were vending a show together, and we we did a trade. And Speedy was a local Maryland guy, and um, he actually he was killed. He was uh, killed in the hit and run. 
Someone actually yeah. struck him with a vehicle, and he was killed in a hit and run. Um, and so um, he, you know, a tragic loss for the community. He was, you know, very, I mean, just an astute keeper, very into uh, looking at husbandry and different aspects. He was all about breeding his own rodents and controlling the food that went into the rodents because that made better snakes. He was just, that's the way he, you know, that was his whole process. It all needed to be controlled by him, the breeder. So I think it, it would be great if that female actually, you know, could be the carrier for this, just to kind of carry Speedy's name on a little bit. His mom had um, carried on his collection, as you know, Bill, for a while after yes. he passed yes. away, and then unfortunately yes. she passed away, and Scott yes. Stahl helped yes. rehome yes. his collection. Buddy, I still have a Carpondro produced by Speedy Gonzalez. It's a 75% green tree Carpondro. This thing is 20 years old. It's got to be close to 20. 20. It's 18 years old. Yeah, 18 yeah. or 20 years old now. Yeah. A male, 75%. Wow. And uh, I just can't kill this thing. <laughs> you know, he's, just, <laughs> he's, un- he's unbelievable. He, You know, Speedy, that was always his goal. He wanted to produce 75% green tree Carpondros. And when he did it, it was just like, you know, his, his pinnacle. And I never knew Speedy, but I got to speak with his mother at, um, at, uh, the ICAS. I met her there and then I became good friends with Scott, uh, because he took care of a lot of the green trees and then rehomed him after Speedy's mother died. And I ended up with the majority of his 75% Carpondros, which I kept for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, I rehomed, sold a couple, but I still have one, and it's just, it's an amazing animal, and, uh, you know, so, yeah, I I have a little bit of Speedy here with me, too. That's awesome. That's awesome. And so, the other pairing that just hatched out, yeah, great history. I mean, that would be so fitting if this, you know, if it could be definitely one of those things where, you know, you know how to build these chondros, you kind of they hatch out, and um, you're like, should I keep this one? Or, you know, and this yeah. is why I keep most of mine. It's because you just don't know. Like, <laughs> you know, ha- sometimes having that visual trait, it's like, okay, this is something that's definitely unique visually, at least as a neonate. So, you know, you know, we kind of maybe can set you up with uh, keeping it. But it'll be interesting to see what happens, what it looks like. I'm going to put those photos up. Um, but I will let everyone know also that the second clutch I hatched out this year was actually sired by the same male, um, and it was paired to a female that's completely unrelated. Um, and so, you know, this, you know, that, that's pretty much it for the breeding season for me. I'm also trying, um, you know, I've had diamond pythons for five years, and um, three of them are six years of age, and one is five years of age. And so I've just, you know, just kind of pushed off breeding those guys for a while and I decided this year to give that a try. So I'm trying a pair to see what happens. Um, I've seen a couple locks and just kind of waiting to see what happens, see how it progresses, see how we go. Yeah. Yeah. That, that would be awesome. Are you keeping those diamond pythons uh, in a different room, a different place, a different place, or how are you keeping them differently than your green trees? Um, so what I what I do with the diamond pythons is in the fall after I've, you know, I stopped feeding them. And then after about a month of 
me not feeding them. I then moved them to an I have a breezeway in my house that is um, heated, but we don't keep it very warm, so we let it get down to, uh, you know, 50 degrees overnight and that kind of stuff. So I'm, I've been moving them in the fall, usually in November, uh, to this room. And um, it's, it happens to be where I do all the, the GTP Keeper radio shows. And um, <laughs> I move them in the oh, room, and I keep them out here till like, yeah, keep them in the studio till February or March. Um, and then I, I move them back and um, then, you know, start them back on food. And then this year, of course, I fed them and then I introduced them. And, and that's where we are. So that, that's the only thing yeah. different I do. And then the rest of the year, they're down hanging out the chondros. They, you know, they get down to the my the area of my chondros uh, can go down to like 70 degrees at night and stuff like that. So they go that low at night, but then they get a decent hot spot during the day. Yeah, very very cool. Very cool. I think so. We'll see. Well, um, because of my move and relocation, I pretty much shut down my breeding this year. I, um, you know, it just uh, wasn't worth it for me to you know, with, with all of the activity and the stress on, on, on me with the move, moving into a new house and the stress on the animals, I, I just kind of took this season off. I took a cue from uh, Eric Burke when we moved. Uh, he pretty much just shut down his breeding that year. And, uh, I did the same thing and, um, I'm, I'm glad I did. It gives, gives kind of me a chance to rest, uh, gives the animals a chance to rest and make and uh, so I did not do a lot of breeding this last fall. Uh, so, but I am looking forward to this coming fall to, to, to getting some new projects. I've got some females that I produce that are going to be of age uh, this upcoming season. And uh, so nice. I'm excited about that. I've uh, really probably the biggest thing with me has been, uh, you know, uh, transitioning and growing up uh, my sickness clutch that which is unbelievably they're 10 months old now and wow. um yeah they, they're doing great i i sold a handful of those uh which which you would have never done but i did sell i ended up <laughs> selling six six of those babies and i just recently shipped shipped those out and i'll tell you i did it in a couple of different runs and I'll tell you, putting three sickness babies in boxes and, and shipping them out and dropping them mm. off the FedEx, uh, that, that makes for a, a sleepless night, as you can probably imagine. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, but happy to report that uh, all six babies made it uh, safe to their new homes and their new owners, and they have all uh, just immediately been tucked in and eating and are being established uh, great. I have... I have one left actually that, that's going to Italy, and obviously this is not uh, the time that, that that I'm going to be shipping animals to Italy. So I'll, I'll hold on to that animal for however long it takes uh, uh, to get them overseas. Right. Yep. Yep. That's the way it goes. We did a uh, uh, Christian Stewart did a shipment to South Africa. Oh wow. And, um, yeah, and. I had, I sent uh, this person had 
got a hold of me and said, you know, Christian's doing this shipment. I want a couple of your snakes. I think you wanted to buy three or four of my snakes that year. Um, and so it was probably, Bill, I would say almost 15, 16 months to get wow. the paperwork done, the CITES done, to go through the process that South Africa uh, wanted to allow importation of reptiles. Um, it, it, it was, I mean, sitting on snakes forever, um, you know, just, and it makes you nervous when you do that. <laughs> At least it does me, you know, you sit on those snakes. Um, and so, but yeah, that, man, that was, that was kind of a nerve wracking experience for me. Christian was a pro, so he did all the logistics wow. and handled everything. So I just had to drop snakes off to him at one point, but at some point, but yeah, that, that, that's send them overseas. Yeah. Christian is the master of that for sure. I know he's, he's sent many animals um, over to Europe and I actually held on to these babies much longer than I had anticipated. Even the, the local, the U S the ones that went to the people in the U S because we've talked about this before. Um, I wanted to have these things sexed before I uh, determined holdbacks and before, um, you know, these people that were interested, they wanted, you know, known males or females. And Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, for the first time ever, this was the first clutch that had ever been genetically uh, sexed based on shed samples. And that was done by uh, Benson uh, Morrill of rare genetics Inc. And that process took longer than either one of us had anticipated it taking, but it's a very uh, interesting, very unique process. And I think it can be a real game changer for all of us, breeders, collectors, um, you know, here in the future, uh, being able to have these babies sexed uh, shortly after they're hatched. Yeah, that, that that's amazing right there, being able to to have that done. Yeah, I'm, I can't go. I, I don't know the details of exactly how he does it. He he obviously uses markers from the parents, um, and currently for green tree pythons, in order to him for him to sex a clutch, you need to provide him with a shed from the mother, the father, and then the father's father. So you have to be able to have mm, okay. all of those all of those uh, animals or sheds available, which luckily in that clutch I did because I had the sickness as a sire, which is Jaeger. I still have him, and so I was able to send sheds and and then from markers from those animals, uh, he's able to determine the sex. Very interesting side note, and I I, I discussed this one with Harlan Wall. Um, I sent him accidentally a sample of another animal not from the clutch it was just a mistake Mm. it was in the same rack as the sickness babies and um he sent me back a note he goes hey listen i think you may have a mixed clutch because one of the sheds that you sent me doesn't have the markers of of either of the parents and i was like well what number was it and he said it was number five and i said well the sickness babies didn't start until number 11 or 12 and then I went back and looked, mm. and sure enough, I had accidentally sent him a a shed of an animal that was not in that clutch, and he was able to tell me that, which was I thought was really That's cool. That's awesome. 
yeah, yeah. Definitely. So again, not again, not only you know are you able to tell the sex of the animal, but you're able to guarantee you know lineage, right? Which you know I, I think is is vital because not only you know is there a possibility of of sperm retention, but you know there's all possibility of you know maybe two males are introduced to the same female um and you know how you know that really you know, definitely Gareth definitely helps establish uh parental lineage just a, a lot of valuable information and um i think according to ben he's going to be able to refine his process and eventually, you know, you're not going to need to have that grandsire's shed if you can just provide sheds of the mother and father, uh, and then the baby sheds. You know, he'll be able to to do sex determination based on that. Hmm. Well, well, hey, there you go. Yeah, interesting stuff. It's very interesting. So, Phil, so, we do have a question. Okay. So we have a question from uh, Drea Browder, and let me read it here real quick. And that's Evan. Does he post under both Evan and Drea? Uh, yeah, I think he goes back and forth. Okay, that's gotcha. Evan. Right. Okay. <laughs> Just any advice to calm me down as I'm going to try and pair up BX and Manaquari this season. My nerves are all over the place. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I'll let you take that one. Um, I don't know if there's a way to do it. Um, I'm, I, you know, if you were listening, I just explained my experience with a female I lost this year, and you know it's always nerve-wracking because you just don't know what the outcome is going to be. You want it to be, you know, everyone is should be hopeful that it's going to turn out smooth and perfect, but we all have um, we have these hiccups, and um, it's hard not to be emotionally attached to your your snake collection and. Um, I really don't know anybody that can be completely emotionally detached. So I would just say, you know, just be prepared. And um, chances are you won't run into any, you know, major issues. What, what do you think, Bill? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's definitely uh, the chances. But if you, you know, just talk to anybody that uh, has kept these things long enough or or bred them enough times, uh, you're going to have your heart broken. You know, there's just no two ways around it. But you have to, you know, just have the fortitude to to take to take the bad with the good. Because the good the good is so so good. Right, and you know, when things are perfect. Um, you don't learn a lot when when things go not as planned or just take a, a strange twist. You tend to increase your 
your working knowledge of of any topic or and the and these animals. So, you know, I guess you, you could see it as a potential for growth and learning and experience that maybe you can help somebody else with in the future. Yeah. Yeah, um for sure we've uh we've talked about this many times, you know, the best way to learn is is learning from other people's success and failures. Um, but you're going to have to learn from your own success and failures too. You know, that's, that's just, that's just the way that it is. That's it. That's it. And, you know, working with live animals, no, no guarantees. Um, but, you know, I, I would just say that, um, you know, most people have success. Um, if you take your time and, you know, follow pretty much the established protocols. For the most part, you you should be good to go. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You're going to have success. Um, it is a bit of a numbers game. I mean, I know people that, that have one male and one female, and they, you know, produce viable clutch or clutches, and, and that's phenomenal, uh, but you increase your odds, you know, if you have a couple of pairs or, or three pairs that you're able able to work with and and again you're learning you know you're just learning exponentially by the number of animals uh, that you're able to work with yep absolutely but the barkers call that snake years yeah that was, exactly. that was their term yep yeah um one of the one of the old condor guys here in maryland they, his name is paul august um he owned actually, he was a condor guy, but he also did an acrylic caging company called Maryland Custom Cages back in the day. And we became pretty good friends. And um, we were chatting with him one night with uh, my friend Tim Morris and I and uh, just talking about, like, well, what what does success mean for you with, like, breeding condros? And this is probably a decade or so ago, if not if not longer. And Paul's, Paul's definition of success is, I didn't wind up with any less animals than I started with. And so what he was saying was, yeah, I may not have produced any babies, but I also didn't kill any of my adults. So that that would be a successful breeding uh, experience <laughs> for me, uh, yeah. which is interesting how, you know, things have changed as far as, like, success with uh, the species in captivity and breeding. Yeah, we're – you know, we're making strides every year, every generation. You know, I think we're, we've certainly dialed in the husbandry of these things. Um, you know, and I don't know if we'll ever get the breeding um, as dialed in as, as we have with other species. But my hope is, and my thought is, is the more generations of these animals that you produce in captivity, the easier that this is going to become for us. At least, you know, at least that's what I'm hoping. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, I mean, I've, I personally can tell you that I've experienced it, um, you know, with, you know, just the regularity of being able to, um, you know, produce chondros. I think it's, um, I think what a lot of what really influences success is my experience of starting with young animals and them being, you know, in tune and well-established, you know, with however you're keeping them. 
And then I've also noticed that the animals that I've produced that have stayed here, so they were hatched here and stayed here as adults, they seem to me to to be the most successful animals for breeding. Absolutely. That that is 100%. I I agree absolutely. An animal that is, you know, born in your place and your facility and has grown up under, you know, the conditions that you provide are the ones that are going to thrive and are the ones that are most likely to reproduce. So, you know, I guess basically the answer to the question is is um, you can control what you can control, and there's no reason to worry about the rest. That's it. That's it. You have to kind of like let things take their course and be willing to, you know, kind of accept that uh, you've done your best to prepare yourself and your animals. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, the more educated that you can become on other people's experience, you know, that's just going to help you. Um, and, and once you get that first clutch or two underneath your belt, you're going to get a little confidence. And um, then you can just really accept the fact that, hey, I've, I've done the best that I can do. And, uh, you know, this is Mother Nature at work, and there's a lot of things that I can't control. Uh, I can only control you know, what I can control and give them the best environment, the best conditions, and, uh, you know, whatever happens after that happens. Yep. All right. Well, I I have another question from somebody that's not on Facebook, but she sent me a message on Instagram. This is actually uh, a friend of mine, somebody that I know. Her uh, Her name is Sabrina. She's in the Dallas area. And she messaged me that she has a adult carpet python and a baby royal python that she's had for about a year. And she is interested in getting a green tree and wants to know what we recommend uh, a baby, acquiring a baby or an adult as her first time green tree. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I would go with the younger animal. Um, assuming by baby she means establish an established neonate. That's what I would do. Okay. Yeah. What would you do? I Bill? would agree. I, I would agree with that. But my initial thought was that it's um the source of the animal is much more important than the age of the animal. So I think you could do either um, and and be successful as long as, you know, you acquire the animal from a reputable source that's going to give you, uh, you know, customer service and be there to answer your questions about the animal, uh, somebody that produced the animal, that knows the animal. Um, you know, I think you could do it successfully either way. Uh, my my ideal animal would be uh, like a subadult, maybe an animal that's a yearling. I think that, to me, that that's the perfect first acquisition. And I say that only because I've had babies here that I thought were established, you know, maybe ten meals <laughs> in them, and then right. they stop eating. You know, they stop eating at my place. You know, for a, for an experienced 
keeper that knows that animal since it came out of the egg and it, it gets 10 meals in it. And then all of a sudden, you know, it stops eating for me, you know, and then it takes me time right. to yep. kind of reestablish that animal. And I, I think that's a lot less likely to happen to an animal that you send to somebody that's, you know, a year, 18 months old, something like that. Definitely. Those animals, those yearlings and 18 month olds definitely have more reserve. So should they, they decide do. to not eat for a while, they can definitely in, endure that fast without any long-term effects. So, you know, that, that's, you know, a, a great question, Bill. When, you know, for you, when do you think a chondro is like an established well enough to kind of like go out to someone in a new home? You know, initially I had always heard and read, you know, 10 meals, get, get, get 10 meals, you know, 10 consistent meals in a baby. In other words, they're eating consistently every week. You get them eating 10 meals, they're ready to go. But I've kind of thrown that out. I'm more of a, I want 20 meals in them. You know, I'm, I want them eating 20 meals. I want them to just be savage feeders and, and then I'm comfortable know, shipping them out. Now, if it's somebody that's local, and I, I much, much prefer to sell locally for lots of reasons. I want to keep the animals close, um, but also if there's an issue, it's just so easy for that person to, to bring it back to me and let me reestablish it or, or let me watch the person feed it or let, you know, let me look at your setup or, you know, it's just so much easier, especially for the first time keeper that if if you can get that animal somewhat locally, um, I'm much more likely to let a baby go than, you know, having to ship it across, you know, across the country. Right. Agreed. Yep. So I like, you know, I was, um, I used to do like a three month thing if they're eating, for, you know, but three months old and eating regularly, but, um, I guess like seven, six or seven years ago, kind of changed. Uh, it kept them longer and got to the point where I was like, you know, keeping most of the animals to their almost yearlings. Um, but I think one of the big telltale signs of what you had kind of alluded to is, you know, I kind of know an animal is going to be pretty good when I slide open that tub and that snake is paying attention to me and expecting to be fed. They're, you know, they're called alluring, they're, they're alert, um, and they're, they're like, hey, if you feed me, I'll eat. So once you get that kind of established and you get that habit built, um, I think that, you know, that that's definitely when they're established. But, you know, now I, I would say, like, for me, unless I was sending this, like, you know, Bill, if you were like, hey, you know, I would send, I would have no problem sending you an animal that was, you know, maybe not six months of age, Bill. But, but I'd say for most people, six months to nine months. Um, yeah is about, you know, about when I think that they're ready, you know, they're rocking and rolling normally by then. Yeah. And, um, you know, they're, they're pretty much, you, you can tell that they're just going to go to wherever they're going to go and, you know, eat. I've also had people interesting where, you know, you send these babies out and they'll eat like four or five meals for someone and then they kind of just stop. Like it's almost like they get through this, you know, things are, different but they haven't picked up on it enough and then they get to this point where they kind of lag a little bit and then you have to kind of like coach the keeper and okay you're going to have to 
you know, change things up a little bit or do things a little bit differently to get the animal back with the feeding again? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, yeah, I think we're in agreement there that that six-month-old, you know, for me is kind of a minimum age. Again, that's just an animal that's just a ravenous, you know, a perfect animal. You know, I, I want it to be probably want it to be shedding perfectly. I want it to be, you know, just like you said, just looking for food every time you open up that tub. Um, those are the animals that I'm confident shipping out, especially to a first-time keeper, um, you know, like Sabrina would be. Right. And, you know, she should also be warned that um, there's a good chance that after she gets her first chondro, that um, she'll have more, and then um, she'll be looking for good home for her royal python and carpet python. So <laughs> she should be aware of that as well. Listen, I know this girl, and she will never, ever give up her carpet <laughs> or, or her royal python. She okay. she loves those things. Okay. All right. Well, that that brings us to our next question because one of our topics was – housing these things and you know you made the comment nobody has just one right so how are we going to house the first chondro that you get versus okay maybe now you're you've got two or three right yeah that's that's a great question bill you you probably get this a lot and so do i because um you know uh people want green tree pythons um and so we actually had an email from a listener who said, "Hey, I love I love your podcast, um, but I am just I just want one, right, Bill? I think yeah. maybe you said that, and maybe I said that too, right? <laughs> At one point. Yeah. Um, but this is you you know, how do you do just a single chondro? So um, you know, we kind of joke that that doesn't really happen, but there are people that do keep them for, you know, keep one for a pet. And um, so, we, you know, we should maybe just delve into that a little bit. Okay. So, um, you know, what would you suggest, Bill, for like a young, you know, a young condor, six months to two years of, of age? What, you know, if, if someone was approach, had approached you, how would, what would you suggest for them? Well, I, I think a tub setup is, is the way to go. I mean, I think we would agree with that, not trying to house it, um, you know, in a glass exoterra, uh, is probably not the way to go, uh, with your first one, you know, a very basic setup. Uh, and these, and these setups can be so basic. They can be so easy to keep these things if you put them in, in the right kind of box, right? Definitely. The heated so, box. A heated box, exactly, and um, it can be do- it can be done so easily. And there there are e- even people now that are um, making these and are providing them, um, you know, and, and are, are happy to, to do all the work for you and to send it to you. There's a there's a woman uh, local to me. Her name's uh, Sabrina Vega. And she has started putting these tubs together, and she does all the work. She does the purchase, she does the heat, she does the lights, and um, you know she, she just provides just some beautiful tubs that are not only functional but they're aesthetically pleasing. They have a clear 
front cover, so it can be more like a display animal. Um, but again, they're, they're simple. They're 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 heat tape, um, and uh, they're they're you know just very very simplistic design uh, enclosures. And you know I think that's the way that you need to go. It needs to be able to hold heat and humidity consistently. And so you know. Uh, that that's what I would recommend. I, I've done many many uh, tub setups like that. Uh, there's a and, and I know uh, Evan Broder has also used these setups for babies and and yearlings, just like a, a Rubbermaid uh, tote. I think um, they're called uh, extra small all access totes. They've got a, a lid that's right. on top, but they also have a front uh, opening pull down. Uh, door that makes feeding very easy. Um, so again, something like that. You know, you could you can contact her uh, on Facebook. Um, her Facebook name is actually uh, Gar Garvincia Fam. G A R V E G C I A Fam on Facebook, and she provides two different sizes from you know again a very small maybe four or five, six month old, all the way up to a yearling that they can be easily housed in these things. And they're, they're, they're not expensive. Uh, you just need to, uh, you know, get a thermostat and, um, and hook it up and you're plug in and ready to go. It's great. That's, that's a great resource. You know, it's, it's these, um, it's these sub adults that I, I find the most difficult to, to find a tub set up for them. You know, you, you, you get a baby or, or a yearling and you can put it in, uh, you know, so many different uh, of these tubs, but, you know, you get an animal that's two years old, it's not ready for a two by two cube yet, but it, but it can't go in a shoebox size uh, tub. You know, the, to me, those are the animals that prevent, uh, th that have the biggest challenge of finding like the exact right housing for it. Right. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, I, I, you know, I've kept animals up to three years old in, in a, a tub. And, um, you know, some people just have this mindset where I'm getting a two-year-old condor so I can put it into an adult enclosure, and that that may work. Um, but I always suggest that uh, have both ready to go. Have a tub set up. Uh, and have a a cage that way if you move the animal to the cage and it's not really ready for it it's not eating um you know that's our most people are most concerned with that food you know it's got to eat right away where there's a they think it's an issue and so my experience is if you can provide them with a tub let them settle in have a few meals in place and then transition them to the to the adult enclosure or the more open enclosure that uh you know that tends to be a, a better transition as opposed to putting them right from a tub at my place or your place bill into a big open cage yeah and i've seen so many times people that that do that exact same thing and in fact they'll put their tub inside the adult cage you know, for a period of time, um, and and let let them use that adult cage as kind of uh, providing 
just an ambient temperature of, you know, you know, in the low 80s. Babies like that, uh, really in all these adult animals, unless you're trying to temperature cycle them for breeding, do great with without a temperature gradient. You know, they do fine if you can just provide, you know, that, that temperature of 82, 83 degrees, you know, throughout the enclosure with, with no temperature gradient. Um, you know, they do great. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Yep. That's, that's a great way to do it. Um, the, uh, I, so the snake Liggett, that's, uh, this is his third, he's produced three clutches for me. Um, actually he was sold as maybe a 18 month old male and, um, sent him down to a keeper. A keeper was, uh, had a, a decent chondro collection, um, but he, uh, you know, was moved immediately into an adult enclosure, and I tried to convince the the person who was keeping him at the time that you know try to put them in a tub, and they didn't do it, and they were pretty much going to write the snake off because it wasn't eating. So um, I convinced them. I said, send it back to me, and they sent it back to me, and I sent them another animal uh, from that clutch, and. That animal came back, and that night it came in. I put it in, put it in a tub, and I went down. And I looked at it, and I could tell by the way it was perched, it would eat. And that night, it hadn't eaten in like five months. And that night, it ate. And I, you know, snapped the picture of it with my phone, and I, you know, sent it, you know, texted the person, said it's eating, and they were amazed. And um, you know, they he. The person was like, you know, I probably should have just moved it into a tub, and it probably wouldn't have had to send it back to you. So, um, just to go show you that, you know, you have to be able to, you have to have some flexibility in how you do things, and you have to be willing to kind of take a step back and maybe go back to keeping it in the tub and to to get it reestablished or to get it feeling comfortable in your own collection. Most importantly, you have to get it from a reliable source, somebody that can give you, you know, that, uh, you know, the advice that, that you need and the pat on the back and, uh, you know, everything's going to be okay. Or, you know, sometimes everything's not okay and you need to, you need right. to send an animal back and get reestablished. Um, you know that's that, that it's rare that that happens i think you'll you'll agree you you you've sold and shipped many more green trees than i have but i think we'll both agree that it, that it's it's pretty rare to to ship an animal out and to have that animal not established with its new keeper and and you know have to take that animal back right yep i agree yep definitely but how many how many times have we heard um, you know, the story, well, uh, I bought it at a show. I don't, I don't know exactly where it came from. Now I can't get in touch with the person that sold it to me, you know, and then that animal, that animal doesn't do well, doesn't acclimate, perishes. And then, you know, the keeper has a, a bad first experience and, you know, would, would never, you know, doesn't want to try green trees again. Right. Yep. Yep. Still very common. Yeah, very very common. Unfortunately, more yeah, more common really, you know, than the opposite because there's just so many more uh, show animals, imports, 
farm bred babies that are that are sold that don't do well as opposed to animals that are that are sold from uh, breeders and, and that that do do well unfortunately Bill, do you use any tubs for adult animals? Yeah, absolutely. I I, I keep uh, quite a few adult animals, mostly uh, males. In I think we both have the, the large Cambro tubs, right? In a in kind of a in kind of a rack system, but they could be they could be housed individually, you know, in a Cambro Cambro tub as well. Yeah, with uh, what the the product that David Brahms makes, where you can convert that tub into a essentially a standalone cage. Yeah, you you can do it that way, or you know, I think you can just have that that tub just you know sitting there, um, you know, without without a, a face and turned on its side and all that. Again, How do you, you know, your adult tubs, Bill? Uh, with heat tape, just just like I would have a baby. And that heat tape, you know, I traditionally run that heat tape on the side of those tubs, one side of the tub, and then run my perches um, where they can get close to that heat tape if they want to, uh, or they can get away from it. Because as you know, that, that heat tape provides a nice uh heat temperature pretty close to the tub but if you move that if you move that heat gun away and you and you check that the temperature of that tub maybe 6 inches away from the heat tape the temperature is going to drop dramatically right so i like to, i like to be able to position that perch so that animal can get right up against that heat you know if it wants to So I'm actually converting my rack system bill from heat tape to small heat panels. So even like uh, even a tub smaller than than that the Cambro tubs that we're talking about because there's heat panels. No, no, that the Cam the Cambro tubs. Oh yeah, they're big enough that you could use a heat panel for sure um, in those. But anything smaller than those tubs, it's going to be tough to to find a a heat panel small enough, you know, to utilize in those. Right, definitely, definitely, yeah. And one of the things I do in my my collection is my heat panels are not off to one side; they're in the middle of my cages, um, just to let me run a lower. Uh, I guess hot spot and lower ambient temperature as opposed to off to the left or the right of the, the enclosure. And so that's what I'm doing with these tubs is that the, the very small heat panel that um, and the, the heat panels uh, in the center of each of the tub, each of in the rack. So mounted to the top of the rack and the tubs are cut out from the, from the back. So the, tubs slide in 
around the heat oh, wow. panel. Okay. So would you say that there's a heat gradient in that tub then or not? It's just an ambient temperature. Um, it is. They're they're pretty narrow heat panels. Um and uh so I had to, the heat panels don't they the the least ones that, that I had that and I had to request that the uh the cord be out the the short end and the light be at the right. opposite end. So the lights on the short end and the front that you know that tells you that the power is going to the heat panel and the cord in, at the on the other side as opposed to uh, the cages, a lot of the cages I have now, it's on the long side on both of those. So I wanted that to be on the narrow side so I could m mount the narrow side front back to front so it's a narrow area that gets like, you know, the 84 degrees and then, you know, the tub kind of gradually goes down to, you know, 80 or 78 um, on, on either end. Where where are you getting those heat panels? Are these are these custom made heat panels? Uh, if you contact Pro Products and talk to them, they will do that for you. Yeah, that's that's what I was figuring. Yeah, yeah, they can do. Uh, Pro Products can definitely do custom a custom size uh, heat panel, and they're 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 fantastic. If you provide them with the dimensions of your tub, they can tell you. Yeah, we can. or not right yep yeah definitely i mean great great company they they provide a great service and um you know if you exactly tell them what what you're thinking and this is where you know this is what the temps are and they'll they'll kind of he's very concerned with obviously he doesn't want you to cook an animal so he's very concerned with making sure that um the, you know, the heat panels size appropriately yeah yeah, they're they're the best uh, in the business, and that kind of goes back to one of the things that we had that we're going to talk about is is uh, husbandry equipment with these animals, and you can't skimp, you know, you can't skimp on these animals uh, the way that you're going to keep them. Um, you know, you need to get the best products available, put them in the the best environment possible. Yeah, agreed. Um, you know, we had talked about this on a previous shows, Bill, that, you know, people are, you know, condors aren't a, a cheap animal. Or, and I hate, I hate saying cheap, and I hate saying budget and or relatively inexpensive because those words really don't have uh, true definitions. But, you know, they are a costly animal, I guess I would say, and they, they you know, for even uh, an entry-level animal, can be a, quite an investment for someone to make into a living creature. And, um, you know, one of the things we had talked about was, like, you know, not only do you need the animal, but you need to make sure you have the equipment ready and hopefully up running for uh, some time so you can troubleshoot anything before you get the animal. Um, and... You know, we had talked about, you know, some of the things that maybe had restricted access for these snakes were, you know, the cost of caging, the cost of thermosets, the cost of heating. Um, you know, a decent cage, um, 
a nice thermostat, a nice heat panel can put your maybe come close to you know two thirds or a half of what a, a chondroble could set you back. So um, yeah. yeah, you know sometimes you know you, you know and but I will say that um, you know my experience with quality products like Helix thermostats, which I don't even know if they make them anymore or not. Uh, Herbstat products, you know, do do they still make those, Bill? Are they still uh, available? I, I I'm sure they are. I, I've never used them. I've always okay. used um, Herbstat thermostats, but but yeah, you, right. your, your point is well well taken. You know, you, you're making an investment in these animals, and but you have to look at it at the other end. If you do make the initial investment, you're looking at an animal that's going to provide 20 years of of um, you know pleasure in your life. And, you know, you put it in the right conditions and, you know, you're just not going to have to to worry about it most of the time. Right. You yep. know, just, just make the initial investment. I mean, but you're right. You're talking about uh, by the time you spend, uh, you know, entry, even an entry level animal and you get the proper equipment for it. Uh, you, you know, you're, you're talking about a thousand dollars, you know, a Easy. lot of times, which is. Which is a lot of money for for one animal. Especially if you're a younger person and you know you've had this lifelong dream of, I want a chondro. You know, got to ha- have to have one of these. Um, yeah. I think so many people get um, infatuated with the idea of setting these animals up in, you know, these naturalistic vivariums and they lose focus of, you know, the animal is the focus of that box. You know, not necessarily uh, the surroundings of the animal, but, you know, the animal should be the focus. And that's the beauty of these things. You know, you put them in a box and even if, even if it's just a plain, very simplistic box, you know, people's eyes are going to be immediately drawn to the animal, and that's what you want. Right. Yep. Yes. Yep. Bill, have you ever tried setting up, like, a, a chondro cage with live plants and substrate other than, you know, the the product that you're using uh, now? Uh, no. No. Never tried it. Have had no desire uh, to do that. Uh, I know it can be done. It's been done successfully uh, by a lot of people but I think especially with your first one that's going down a very long road yeah I think it's it could be difficult to troubleshoot you know it, it just adds complexity I think um, you know can can make can make challenges um, I've seen some great examples of it being done though I mean there's there's some, oh, you know, some of those, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and like, they are amazing, though, because you get kind of sidetracked, like, wow, what what kind of plant is that? That's amazing. And then you kind of forget that, that, that snake's in there, but I've seen some pretty amazing uh, display cages with, you know, planted and, you know, water, you know, water, like, you know, moving water uh, aspects that are yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah. So yeah. when I first got in the chondros, the 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 norm was like 
you kept them on mulch. Like oh, really? If you didn't keep them on mulch, yeah, if you didn't keep them on mulch, well, you just didn't know what you were doing. You know, your snake <laughs> was just going to crawl off that perch and die probably in a couple of days. Um, and so, uh, you know, at that time, the the standard for husbandry was, um, you know, what was popular in the Maxwell book, which was, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of water in the enclosure from misting or you know mist you know misting systems, um, either fake plants or pothos. Uh, yeah, pothos plants. Some form in that in yeah in the, in the, in the cage, and um, I I tried that stuff. I mean I I had mulch you know had mulch in my cages. I tried. I mean the pothos to their credit, um, I, I have no. I'm not a good grower of anything. That's my wife's. That's what she does. Um, so, but I tell you what, I, I, I was pretty good at keeping pothos alive. Um, <laughs> but and, your condors but, all You know, <laughs> yeah, my condors were like, yeah, I was like, what's going on with my snakes? I, and I, I'm not going to say that it was the pothos. I'm not going to say that it was the mulch. I'm not going to say that it was, you know, spraying them three times a day. But maybe all, all of those things combined. Um, maybe influence the, the, you know, the health of the, of the snake. Um, I mean, I remember going to newspaper and thinking, you know, man, this, my, you know, I remember like waking up, like rushing down to the snake room and going in there and like checking that there's, they've been on newspaper for a day and they're still alive. Um, you know, just, just that whole mindset that, uh, to get that change w- was was different because not a lot of people were doing it, and the people that weren't doing it weren't really talking much about it. Um, yeah. So yeah, so I, you know, I I went down all those, and then I got rid of the pothos, and I bought uh, plastic plants, um, and then I got tired of cleaning those things because the snake would crap in them, and so I had to take them outside and wash them and scrub them, and I was like, yes, you know, this is too much work. And I'm knowing people looking yeah. at these things anyway at my house at that time, so you know, so it wasn't giving me any pleasure, and the snakes didn't seem to, to mind one way or the other, so they just went away eventually. Yeah, and and you know, I kind of came in the generation after you, where most of you guys have, had kind of figured that stuff out that uh, that they don't need that. Sometimes less is more, and they can thrive. Inside a very simplistic box. Yep, yep. You know, and then you know, I I would never discourage anyone from from going down that road if they want to go down that road with their snake. But my normally, you know, normally I'm I would suggest that you know start off simple. That way things are easy to yeah. troubleshoot, and then. Increase complexity as you go along. Yeah. And yeah. you become agreed. more comfortable with, with, with what's going on. Yeah, agreed. And there's enough resources out there if you dig hard enough and uh, to find that, you know, that eventually when you're comfortable with the simplistic husbandry aspects, you know, there are enough people out there that are keeping them in complex displays. And, you know, eventually I think you you could transition your animal – you know, to an environment like that. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, like you said, it's, 
it's one thing to have one chondro in a in a complex environment like that, but to have five, twenty, you know, I'm sitting on forty. You know, do do I want to have, you know, forty complex environments? Uh, it would be impossible. Right. I and, agree. And the yes, bottom, I mean, the bottom line is, yeah, the bottom line is they don't need it. You know, you're doing this for the keeper's enjoyment, essentially, at that point. Very true. Very true. Well, what other uh, what other husbandry pearls do you have up your sleeve? <laughs> pearls? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and gee, I don't know. What about uh, uh, what are you doing feeding wise now? This is a topic that I've kind of come full circle around. You know the whole rat versus mice versus balanced, um, you know, prey items versus you know chicks, um, African softwares. You know what? What are you feeding the majority of your collection now? Uh, the majority of my collection are still feeding on mice, but I will have I will say that my rodent guy. Um, so I would buy extra large mice from him, and they were good sized mice, um, retired breeder type things, and he has not been able to provide the. Even though he's still calling them the extra-large mice, they're not the same extra-large mice that I was buying four years ago. Okay. And um, so, you know, he had, you know, I had chatted with him a little bit, and he has kind of said that um, they moved uh, to a different facility a couple of years ago, and, um, you know, he's had just, you know, I guess, increased volume demand just increased demand from different customers because the economy's good more people are keeping snakes so there's been less growing time for the animals to where they are like extra large so i've actually had to start purchasing uh small small rats yeah. to every once in a while augment a feeding with um and i do actually for my diamond pythons i still I, I do feed them rats as well, so I mean I have some medium rats here for a while, but they're for the for my diamonds. But so I have been, you know, I would say that his extra large mice or what his large mice were four years ago. So and I'm not a big fan of like feeding two or three, you know, rodents at a feed at one time. Um, yeah, that's tough. You know, to I like do. to just tough to do. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. When you're, I mean, I don't have 450 animals, but I, you know, I've got, you know, over 50 chondros. So, you know, when I want to, when I feed, I want to just feed once and be done with it and be done. Um, you know, yep, exactly. Be done. So, um, so we'll see. Actually, I just got, I just had a rodent order and, um, the animal, the, uh, the extra large mice I got, they, um, they definitely were, much bigger than they had been in in the past couple of years, so I don't know whether maybe he's just not. He vends a lot of shows and the shows aren't going on, so I don't know whether he's just been able to grow them a little bit bigger before he starts uh, euthanizing for food. Um, but they were definitely bigger this time, so who knows? So yeah, definitely have you know had to change that up a little just just because of, just out of necessity. 
Yeah, I've gotten much more back to feeding a balanced mix of mice and rats. Um, I'll, I'll say that most of my large females are getting primarily rats, small rats now. I'd say probably mm-hmm. uh, three out of four feedings, they're getting small rats, and then I'll mix in a, a jumbo you know, mouse uh, as well. But um, you know, kind of like you, I don't want to feed some of these really big girls you know, two, two mice at a time, it's just so much more convenient, you know, to feed that small rat. Um, you know, having said that, I don't think I've ever fed uh, a rat to, you know, any of my males. They, they, they're just kind of exclusively mice eaters. Um, right. But just for, just for convenience uh, to keep uh, size and, and weight on these girls, I've really gone more to feeding to feeding them rats than mice. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's no industry standard for what a what an extra large mouse is or or what a small rat is. So it's you know it's it's available from whoever's producing your rodents as well. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, after a while, you can tell, like, okay, that meal was a good size, that was an appropriate size meal, or that meal was too small or too large, and you can kind of figure that out after a while, so you kind of can, you know, just just use your judgment. Yeah, I think, you know, everybody's concern with, with feeding rats is, is there was some anecdotal evidence that, that these adults would prolapse more. Feeding rats, and I and I just have not, I haven't found that to be the case in my collection. Yeah, oh, excuse me. I will say that 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 that. I mean, I've had I was an exclusive rat feeder for years and years, and I never, you know, let me knock wood here, but I've never had a prolapse in an adult from you know, uh, you know, from feeding rats or anything like that. So I haven't had that experience. Um, so but, you know, you things, which things are different. <clears throat> um, just talking with Rico about, um, he had just told me that he, his, based on, you know, his vast, you know, much more vaster knowledge of chondros than I did, that he had noticed, um, less, uh, the eggs didn't appear to have poor calcification or the windows in them that he noticed with feeding oh. small rats. I you know, his thinking was, you know, mature animal may have more cal- more have ava- may have more available calcium um, to for the females to kind of you know be able to shell the eggs a little bit more. And I'd I'd noticed that too. I'd had you know definitely when I was exclusively fed rats, I definitely had bigger clutches. But I will say I also had you know eggs that were poorly calcified that um, some of those didn't make it through incubation, some of those did. So okay. and I had kind of gotten through the phase of not wanting, you know, 25 babies from a pair of chondros. And, um, you know, I thought, you know, you know, somewhere between 16 and 10 is a, is a manageable number. And, um, you know, it kind of, you know, just made sense to me. So that, that's why I changed. 
Okay. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And, um, yeah, I've certainly had clutches that, that uh, appeared that the eggs were uh, poorly calcified. Um, and, you know, we've talked about that theory before about baby chondros that prolapse. It may actually have been the result of a calcium deficiency in the mother. And when those babies uh, are born and, and they develop, they have weak teeth from low calcium levels, they shed those teeth, and that's what's, what's causing them to prolapse. Yes. Yeah, that's uh, uh, Vladimir out of Bushmaster had proposed that, that theory, that, that that's what's causing prolapse in babies. Um, so, yeah, and, you know, Calcium is one of those weird – calcium is unique is that, you know, even though it's uh, – it may be available in a diet, the animal also has, has to have the uh, the capability to actually absorb the, the calcium and actually use it. So it's not only, you know, is it available, but can it be absorbed and used? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Um all of it's anecdotal, you know, there have not been any yep, obviously sure. studies, studies published uh, to try to, you know, prove all of these, uh, all of these, you know, theories that we have. It, it gets me kind of going back to the, you know, a balanced kind of balanced diet for these things. Um, you know, feed them both, feed them, you know, right. feed them rats, feed them, feed them ASFs, you know, just, um, you know, maybe you'll maybe you'll get lucky. Yeah, Bill, do you do you feed uh, chicks? I've never fed a chick. No, and I, I certainly haven't. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Neither have I. I actually bought some chicks, thinking like, you know, a few years ago. I think I was inspired. I can't remember who it was. Like, you know, very. It might maybe been Ian or maybe Harlan. Uh, you know, very diet, all this kind of stuff. And then I bought some chicks, thinking I was going to feed them. And then uh, maybe Harlan had t- chatted with me about, um, you know, possibility of uh, foodborne uh, illness or I can't remember what it was that could be carried by feeding chicks. So I was like, okay, not doing that. So I had, you know, I, I just just purchased them and, you know, before I'd have fed to anybody, I just kind of like, okay, they'll just stay here and I'll just pluck the fuzz off of it for baby chondros when I need it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't know. I've never um, I've never even really thought about feeding feeding chicks. Uh, it's it's a pretty common diet item for people that keep carpets. I know I know a lot of people that that keep carpet pythons successfully that 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 feed um, feed uh, chicks as part of their diet. Uh, but I don't know. I'm one of those things that you know. It seems to be working for me the way that I'm doing it for the most part, so I, I'm not going to change it. Right. Yeah. Why? Why change it? Yeah. That's, that's normally when you get yourself in trouble. When things are going <laughs> right. well and you decide to let's let's make a change and see how this works out. Yeah. The the enemy of of good is better, right? That's right. Yes, it is. <laughs> Well, all right. Listen, we're coming up on two hours. Yeah. 
Let's get out of here. Yeah, time went by fast. You did great. I I don't think you uh, I don't think you took a bathroom break or I don't think you took a nap at one time. I uh, I had a Texas catheter on, Bill, so I figured we, we'd be okay. <laughs> um, well, but yeah, but next time we will have a guest. Thank God. Yeah, exactly. So I can slink back into the darkness and kind of run the <laughs> technical stuff over here. All right, awesome. <laughs> All right. All right, Bill. Well, it was great chatting with you. Uh, for everyone to listen to publicly, it was kind of like our phone conversation, but now everyone was able to listen to us. It was great catching up with you, my friend. Yes, it was, Bill. All right. You have a great evening, and everyone, thanks for listening to GTP Keeper Radio, and uh, we'll be back soon with another show and with a guest. Have a good night. Good night, guys.